This podcast is a Royfield Brown production. Find others on iTunes. All right. Yeah, I know. Um, my name is Kate. My name's Joe. My name's Nicola. My name is Suzanne Hakimi. My name is Mary Parkinson. I'm in Hope House as a client. Um, I have had addiction issues um, throughout Hope my House, life, um, um, including an eating disorder, heroin, crack, um, addiction drink, to drugs, methadone, and alcohol. I'm here because it got really bad. part of the Hope House fundraising committee. And I'm the head of service, so I run Hope House. I'm at Hope House because I work here. Hope House started off as an eight-bed unit in Maida Vale, and um, we're an all-women unit. Charity Action on Addiction was formed in 2007 by the merger of three smaller charities. Hope House in a, a, a large grade two listed building. Little Action on Addiction. The idea was first mooted in 1987 by my mother, Lady Parkinson, when a Professor Griffith Edwards in the National Health Service came to my mother and asked her to help them set up a research charity. The rooms for the clients are three bed and two bed. So basically, shared rooms, shared space, and there's, there's a purpose in that, and that's to ensure that our clients, when they come here, they don't isolate. Well, I started work at Hope House in January 2010, and I had read an article about Hope House some months before, and when I read about it, what I read, or what I took away from the article was that this was a place where women worked to help other women. Uh, I've got three children. I've got a 23-year-old who's got a baby who doesn't speak to me. I've got a 17-year-old daughter, Ricky, and I've got a 13-year-old son, Alfie, and they were all born on heroin. They didn't know what they know now. I mean, Jake's 23, so I remember doing a chart of his high-pitched crying, and I used to do it myself. And he was, he did suffer. And Ricky, she didn't have no symptoms, but Alfie did really badly. And he was put on baby morphine and some other stuff, like Valium, and I think I was in hospital about three months with him. And none of that, my children, you know, having kids and that, didn't change any of that. The drugs, because I hear people say, you know, you don't love your kids, and it's not that. It's I, It just took over. Addiction, to me, is more powerful than anything. I've done treatment once before, about 14 years ago, but I've done it for the wrong reasons. I've done it for my kids. But this time I ended up in um, Ladywell Unit at Lewisham Hospital, um, hearing voices, cutting myself. I was brought up in a fairly affluent family. My father's a professor, my mother was a social worker. Um, my, my grandfather abused me from the age of four, which is 
probably I can date my eating disorder back to that time. Um, I remember my mum and dad arguing a lot, my dad drinking, um, my mum puffing, um, you know, uh, and then it's, it, it is a bit of a blur, but I, my dad started coming to my room and abusing me sexually. At what age, I don't know. When I was 11, my mother was um, diagnosed with a brain tumour and she became progressively worse. My father left home. Um, she died when I was 17. And I left for London the, the year after. Uh, I went to London to university and I, <laughs> I won't say I fell into bad company. I sought out bad company. Yeah, so when I was, I don't know, 15, I mean, at 12, 13, I used to run away from home, but put the door on the latch, and I used to go up these people, these guys' houses where they used to inject heroin, and and I used to love watching them, and my mum taught me to steal off my dad when he was drunk. And that's really where I my addiction became an issue. I'd, I'd used drugs from the age of about 14, and alcohol similarly I think. Um, although before that time I, I was taking my grandmother's tranquilizers and sleeping pills as a way of blocking out my parents' um, arguments actually. And um, over the course of my, my time in London um, I used a large amount of cocaine, I progressed to heroin um, to fund all that, I actually worked for um, an escort agency uh, and somehow I managed to scrape through my degree, which is a miracle. When I was 16, I got a job in for New Woman magazine over the West End, um, a bought ledger in accounts, and I've just left home, just left home about 16, yeah, 16, nearly 17 I was, and never ever went back. Addiction takes people into isolation, so the whole point of that is helping them to learn to live together. It's not always easy, but they manage. I'd say I'm mixed with the wrong crowd, definitely, but I always felt different at school and not different from other people. I became I so desperate that at the way I was living my life, it was just not what I wanted. I, a friend of mine, a very dear friend, died of an overdose, and... I just knew I had to get out. And then I met a man who was so far removed from the people I knew um, that I thought maybe he could save me and I married him. I was going out with this bloke who was on the gear. I was always wanting to be in a relationship and I was always in a relationship. And um, I got the job but I was still going out clubbing, taking ecstasy at that time. At 16, I took cocaine. My mum's friends were selling it, doing social books, you know, all that sort of stuff. It was always madness, Nick stuff coming in the ass, all that stuff. But when I worked for this magazine, I, I just got in with the wrong crowd, I think. Well, but I'd say it's about the way I felt about myself. And then had three babies in very quick succession and considered myself miraculously cured because I didn't use or drink during my pregnancies. 
I think society views addiction. Addiction is seen as something that somebody does and has the capacity to stop. What is vital and important is that somehow we somehow we educate society to look at this a little bit differently. If we can get society to see this as an illness, because it is an illness, um, and it starts somewhere, somewhere possibly in childhood, possibly childhood, school, parent, I, 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 you know, um, then there might not be so much judgments about it. And, and for me, I feel like I'm up against, I'm up against, you know, the, the way society sees these women. I'm up against that in a way. After I had my last baby, I I decided I needed to do something. I found um, I, I was although I love my children dearly, I absolutely did. I, I felt understimulated, so I decided to go back to college um, and become a teacher. And so I did a one-year course and found my first um, employment. I just um, threw myself at school. I worked and I worked and I worked. So you know, there's an element of perfectionism and um, workaholism. And um, and then we moved to a different area. I found my drinking increased and increased as I worked harder. It wasn't until I was about my mid-30s that uh, everything came crashing to a uh, you know, a halt really. I couldn't sustain the level I was drinking. Um, I was physically addicted to it. Um, my work was suffering terribly. Um, so I just sort of um, threw my hands up and, and signed off sick. I didn't lose, I've never lost a job miraculously. We know addiction, we know that addiction becomes a problem in itself. So if you are taking something that's addictive, if you are drinking alcohol continually, if you're uh, smoking heroin, and if you are taking cocaine on a regular basis, then something else happens. My challenge here is, but why would somebody do that to themselves? There has to be something underpinning that. That's the bit that society doesn't see. Society just sees the criminality that goes with it, the alcoholics that sit on park benches, the kids that are falling out of pubs, and how disgusting all that is. That's what society sees. But what society doesn't see is the abuse and the pain that women walk through the door of Hope House with. You know, I always needed someone to tell me I was all right, I didn't feel all right myself. And the drugs just took all that away, all that pain. Because I always remembered about my dad, but it was like spots, it, like 
memories of it I'd get and then I wouldn't and when it all come out my dad used to sit there and say that um, ring the Samaritan and say my daughter said I'm abusing her what do I do So I thought I was lying. He said, let's take her to the police station, I wouldn't go. It was just a friend at school, my mate Modge. She said, Joe, they're sending you mad, it did happen. But if it wasn't for her, I would have thought that I'd made it up. And even today, me and my mum, my mum's still with my dad and I still speak to him and stuff, but um, it's really mad family, really dysfunctional. And, you know, people always have this fantasy that uh, that people become drug addicts or alcoholics because they go to too many parties, they're good time women. It's not true. People become addicted, in, from my experience, my knowledge, because they've actually had a really difficult life. They've had a lot of very difficult life circumstances. You know, whether it's even just feeling like a, a misfit within a family, feeling less than, low self-esteem, to being sexually abused as a child, to being raped as an adult, to being involved in a domestic violent relationships. All these things are contributory factors to people becoming dependent, i.e. addicted to the drug of their choice. I took a cheque for £24,000 from work. I was going out of an addict. I was using and stuff, but not addicted to heroin at that I was point. doing crack little bits here and there. Because I was late a lot, because I was clubbing, I got sacked. But, you know, when I look back, I think, my God, what was I doing? But I was too into it. I think it. I got two pairs of shoes out of that £24,000. They couldn't prove it was And me. I was scared. I was scared out of my life in that police cell, but I just was brought up, don't say nothing. At my very worst at that time, I would drink... Um, a litre bottle of vodka, which combined with, um, you know, my body weight, I was very, very slim because I wasn't eating anything, you know, and I was in really poor shape. I, you know, I had to drink when I work up I in the morning. I would have withdrawal symptoms if I had, didn't have a drink. Um, and it was utter hell, actually. It was utter hell and I was terrified all the time and uh, isolated myself and I wasn't allowed to see my children without without a responsible adult accompanying me which gave me an excuse I think to drink still more and um, yeah it was a dark time If I was to go somewhere and talk about what we do here, there would be a mixed range of views. And the mixed range of views would be, actually, that's really good work, that's really, you know, you're really helping women to empower themselves, to become better mums, to be, you know, to really not get involved in abusive relationships. 
and actually that has uh, a knock-on effect for society. And the other side, the other polarity will be saying, oh yeah, but look, you know, they got themselves into that mess, so. It's a really difficult, it's really, really, it's very stigmatized, and especially for women. Because for a long, long time, women did not, um, they did not present for treatment because they were terrified that they would be judged, that their children would be taken away from them. They were terrified. So we had a lot of women out there in active addiction and it was under, you know, it was behind closed doors. I had been in a psychiatric institution because I was uh, just so off the wall and so confused. And I was then given um, a community psychiatric nurse, a CPN, who, um, <laughs> she did two things. One was she suggested that um, I might switch to um, smoking marijuana does that help some people? Um, and the other was that I might consider treatment, and I'd never really heard of treatment. Um, I had a little bit of knowledge of the fellowships of AA and NA, and I tried a few meetings, but um, I didn't really think it would work for me, actually. I saw all these happy, whole people, and I kind of thought they might be members of... Uh, a religious cult or something, and I just wasn't interested. Um, so what happened was I, I actually went to a treatment centre for the first time and, you know, was very thankful to detox. Um, but my... I didn't believe that I need not ever drink or use again. I didn't believe that. I thought I could probably get away with it. Um, and I also distracted myself um, by talking, um, by spending a lot of time with the other men in the treatment centre and actually had a couple of relationships while I was there, which is a, <laughs> not a good idea either. And I relapsed very quickly after that. This is a women's only rehab because I think actually the only one in the UK, I think, um, What's really important about it is that a lot of women have had very complicated relationships with men or are scared of men, although I could put it the other way. Sometimes um, there are co there are cross addictions and there is a cross addiction known as sex addiction. Um, so actually it's very good for these women to maybe be away from men um, for all different sorts of reasons, you know, and sometimes just because, you know, it, it's very hard for them to relate to men in either because they've been abused or because actually the only way they can relate to them is sexually rather than have a proper intimate relationship or they've been taken advantage of by men. It's a very, it becomes a very safe place here. And, and they can talk about women's issues and women have issues that are different to men's issues. They just do, you know, we're different. Women are women and men are men. And it just, it's something, I mean, there's moments perhaps of, of slight regression. We become a bit like a girls boarding school, but on the whole, I would say that it, it just, it's a safe 
womanly female environment and it, it seems to work. So, and then I, I decided I would leave the country um, because a change of scene would obviously help me. Um, and I, I went to Portugal with a, with a man I'd met. No word to my family at all, I just left. And everything broke down again and I was back to using drugs and back to the darkness again. Although I thought I was having fun, actually things were just becoming the same as they had been and I knew it at some level. Um, so I was away for some little time and one day decided I'd just come back because I was missing my children. I was utterly selfish and self-centered. Um, and just sort of walked away from this fresh mess I had created and came back home expecting to be welcomed with open arms. Uh, but of course I wasn't. Um, no, of course I wasn't. And my children were suspicious of me and not very um, forthcoming. My husband was furious with me although I'd lied about where I'd been. And I... Um, and then I, I discovered that I was pregnant. Um, and as I usually did, I ran away from that problem. Um, I, I couldn't stay with my family because my husband was utterly destroyed and angry, of course. Then I got really bad and I've always, I've lost my finger from injecting, the scars on my body are horrific, skin popping, picking, a lot of it, especially on crack, I picked a lot with knives and stuff. And I stand in the mirror full of blood and just mad, mad, mad stuff. I couldn't stop drinking or, or using again and I kept doing that to drown out. Well, so I didn't have to face reality. My doctor, my GP had recommended that I have a termination, but I couldn't deal with that. Um, and I had agreed to a termination, but then I ran away again. It was very confusing. Anyway, eventually I was told by another doctor that if I had the child, it would most likely be severely impaired and I had a, a late termination and I, I think that was the point I realised that really I was an addict. My marriage sort of really broke up during this time too. I, mean, I don't blame my husband. He had had enough of the worry of living with an addict. You know, it must, I think one thing not to underestimate. Say hello to a new era of mental health care. Cerebral is here to help you achieve your mental wellness goals with professional therapy and medication management support. 100% online you'll experience the all-new Cerebral way, 
an innovative approach to mental wellness designed around you. You'll get a personalized treatment plan from a therapist, prescriber, or both in a safe and judgment-free space. Your cerebral therapist or prescriber will outline a customized plan with clear milestones along the way, so you can get to feeling your best. With Cerebral, you're not alone in your mental health journey. We're here to empower you to live a fulfilling life. So take that first step towards a brighter future and sign up today at Cerebral.com slash podcast and use code ACAST to get 15% off your first month. Offer only valid on monthly plans. Other exclusions may apply. Offer ends July 31st, 2024. See site for details. And I did for years is the emotional impact on family members. Um, and... The, the sort of waiting and in suspense and just expecting at some point for it all to go wrong again must be incredibly hard to live with. My first day here, I hated it. I thought, who are these people? Oh, it was everyone knew everyone, and yeah, I didn't think this place was for me whatsoever. I didn't unpack for days. I wanted to go, I wanted to use, you know, I just felt different from everyone else. But obviously I wasn't, but that's how it felt. I really didn't want to be here, but I knew I had nowhere else to go. Women come to Hope House generally when they've had what we would call primary which means that they have been detoxed off their drugs or their alcohol and they come here knowing that they need to do more work on themselves because really we, are, we run a therapeutic program, that's what we do, we are in a way a therapeutic community. But it, we are second stage which means that we're halfway, that the women can live here but they do have a certain amount of freedom certain amount, I mean we have curfews and things like that. So we're, we're halfway between being completely closeted in a primary unit and then being in the outside world again. Generally women arrive here because they've been, if, if they've been in our primary, in Action on Addictions primary, which is Clouds in Wiltshire, um, they're told about us as being a possibility if they'd like to have further treatment, Hope House, if they're women of course, not if they're men, Hope House will be a good place to come. We're, we're, we're well known as I think a very good rehab, so local authorities who fund a lot of the women that come here know about us, they'll introduce us to their clients or sometimes the clients themselves, the women themselves have heard about us through friends of theirs who might have been here or just just on the grapevine. So there's an, there's an assessment process and most people generally are accepted um, because we try not to turn anybody away. It's against our ethos, really. Anybody looking for help should get help if we can possibly manage it. I guess if I was, if I was taking someone through Hope House, you know, you walk in, into a really nice reception area. We have the administration office where all the finances and the answering of phones and the housekeeper, they all, they're all housed in the admin office and then we've got all the counselling team in the office to the right in the reception area. Straight ahead we have our large sitting room which is also a 
group room and in the evening is a room where the clients relax, watch television, listen to music. Adjoined to that we have a quiet room where if, if someone doesn't want to be in the larger room in the evening they can go and sit in the quiet room and just have a bit of space. And then upstairs we've got two floors with bedrooms and bathrooms. In the basement we have the dining room, we have the meeting room and the kitchen and the laundry room. So, and then you can go from the, the basement out into the garden, into a wonderful garden where when the weather's nice, the women go out there and they sit around the table. I came to Hope House for the first time and I was really dubious about living in a house of women about whom I knew nothing. Coming to a place with just women didn't appeal to me whatsoever. But I knew women that had been in here that are still clean. I knew I needed something different to what I tried before. I've learnt here that women see through women and they're the best ones for support. And my relationship like with men were always violent, sexual. You know, it was old, I'd always hang about with men. So this was something that I didn't want to do, but I, I knew that it would be good for me. When clients come in here, first of all, they don't want to be with all women. That's the first issue. They don't want to be with all women. They kind of walk in the door and they go, oh no. And then of course, they've got eating disorders that they're resistant to make changes with. Some of our women are actively self harm They have health issues because of what they've done to themselves for a long period of time. I believe now the program really contains them and really supports them. Um, whereas before, it had a very different feel to it. Before, it was a halfway house. Now we're a treatment centre and we work a lot with mental health issues. So now I've, I've created something here that the, I'm, I, feel, I feel assured that these women can come in and get well. That's what I feel. That's the difference. We offer 12 weeks to start with. We would like women to come and stay with us for 12 weeks to do a 12-week program and often it's extended to 24 weeks which I think personally is really good. If you've been using drugs, drinking alcohol for 20 years, 10 years, what's 12 weeks compared to that? So really the longer you can have in a rehab the better. So 24 weeks in my opinion is ideal. We also then offer a 12-week aftercare program where you just, you, you no longer live with us but you come back twice a week and so on and so forth. It, it, it sort of narrows, it, it sort of lessens through the 12 weeks but it, that works very well. We're sort of then the final stepping stone into launching out into, your, into life on your own again. Well the day begins very early here. Um, we have to be downstairs for morning medica uh, med sorry for morning meditation by 7:15, um, and we tumble out of bed, sleepy-eyed and <laughs> clad in our nightwear. And a typical day at Hope House is oh quite full on, I would say. For the women themselves, it begins at seven in the morning where they do a meditation together. They then have to do something called 
therapeutic duties, which is basically looking after the house, I mean housekeeping work, which is which is not a bad thing. I mean, we all have to look after the place that we live in. And then we have a meeting at the beginning of the day with a member of the counselling team where we go through what they're planning to do at the end of the programme each evening so we know exactly what everybody's planning. We They understand that sometimes we will veto their plans if we think it's not a safe thing for them to do. And then that would then lead into doing a therapy group. After that, no, self-study perhaps. Uh, different things, step work, which is to do with the fact that we're part of a, um, we're part of the fellowship. We run a 12-step program, which is AA, Alcoholics Anonymous, Narcotics Anonymous. There's lots of different um, subgroups now, the fellowship groups. And I found really quickly that I really enjoyed being in a house full of women, um, and the program was very demanding. But I like to be busy, I like to be um, stretched and challenged. Then several times a week we have a group therapy group. The clients all have an individual counselling session on their own with a counsellor that they see each week. They have that once a week. We offer workshops, uh, there's reflexology, shiatsu, um, we have nutritional workshops. The other thing that I haven't actually mentioned which suddenly has just struck me, is that a lot of the women also have eating disorders. Not all of them, but quite, but there's always a percentage of women here that have eating disorders as well. Anorexia, bulimia, um, emotional overeating, it's, it's, there's a whole complexity to eating disorders. And we do actually run um, a special group for women four times a week who have an eating disorder where we try and help them overcome that. It's different to drugs and alcohol because obviously you can't give up food and in some cases we're encouraging them to start eating food. It depends on, on which disorder they have but that's something that's uh, quite, an, it's very important to me, it's something that I've been quite involved in setting up for Hope House, it's an area of interest. I think this was the first time I was helped to connect my eating disorder with the rest of my addictive processes and um, that was quite a revelation because for so many years I had hidden my eating disorder in a variety of ways. I go to different fellowship meetings, I go to obviously um, NA and AA and I also go to ABA which is um, anorexics and bulimics anonymous and I also go to CODA which is about codependency um, and you know I go to these with different people who have different issues we become really close really really close and very quickly the most challenging aspect of working at Hope is are the women themselves I think for a while until they get your trust and, and then, you know, people, no one's easy, no one's easy. And you know, there have been moments of, you know, conflict perhaps at times. Uh, I think, I think I probably am quite challenging. Uh, I don't shirk away from anger or rage. So, you know, there's days when I leave here and sometimes I think, ooh, I feel a bit like, 
I've been battered, but possibly, conversely, there's probably days when the women say, oh, Nicola really battered me today. So, I, and that's maybe not the most appropriate word to use, batter, I don't mean that physically, but you know, it's just, sometimes you have to, sometimes you have to go to places that you don't want to go to, almost both as a therapist and as a, as a client, you know, in order to, to find, in order to make your way forward, in order to understand something about yourself that actually is really painful to know about, but is probably very helpful at the same time. I've worked with some women that have had really, really tragic stories, and when I see them leave here with their heads held high, moving into a different place in their lives and being able to sustain it, which obviously not everybody can, and quite a few people have to have several treatments before they finally make it and sadly some people don't make it at all I mean they do end up dying this drugs and alcohol kill people there's no doubt uh, but when it works it is absolutely brilliant and for me it's just somewhere that feeling for myself that I have somehow helped in some way however small however large it doesn't matter that I've contributed to this woman getting on and having a different life. The level of support and help and love I received here, not just from the professionals, but from the other women, was amazing, uh, like nothing I'd ever experienced. And we were a bunch of women of all ages, all backgrounds, um, different experiences. Is there a moment when I think that a client here is going to be all right when she leaves? I think, funnily enough, you can never say, you can never be 100% sure, and I'm not, I'm not a gambling woman. I generally, I can see the women that have probably a greater chance of success, and I can also see the women that are probably not going to make it, at least not this time, sadly. I have a kind of, I could almost say it's a gut instinct, it's more than a gut instinct, of who's going to be all right. But you can never say 100%, because you can be all right for a year, you can be all right for five years, you can be okay for 10 years, and you can still relapse. But, um, but I certainly can, I think, recognize, which is really sad, the women that are going to find it much tougher. But, I've often been surprised, so you know, I'm, I'm, I'm no prophet, that's for sure. I have been surprised because occasionally there's a woman who leaves and I'm thinking, oh no, 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 never going to do it. And she does, so it's, and that's brilliant. You know, this place has given me, I can't even explain it in words, it's given me a new lease of life. I could never have sat here six months ago because I'm, I'm going to go to college, I'm going Kairos third stage. I want to do voluntary work and I know when I leave here I need to keep all I need to do all that stuff because boredom's a big trigger for me you know and the meetings that I do AA and NA are really important but the counsellors here my counsellor's quite emotional <laughs> but she's lovely I think I read a letter to her once and she welled up like no send a letter to my dad you know and they, they, they care about you and they don't always get it right and they're like we're human as well we get frustrated, you know, if we're, we're um, kept in because of this or... It's not like being at school, but it is, you know, I never had no boundaries as a kid. I've never given my kids boundaries. And this place is strict on them, really strict. And even now, they even say to me, Joe, you still try and bend them. 
And, you know, I do a bit, but I can look at that stuff. Like, to, before I'd think, boundaries, what they're about? Was it, does it matter? But it does matter, it really does. Just a lot of them little things that add up. How do we measure outcome and success, okay? As a therapist, for me, it's visual. For my bosses, it has to be, it has to be accountable in terms of statistics. So there's both, there's both. So we have to, obviously, we have to, we have to show, how, how can I describe it? We have to qualify what we do on paper. So we have stats, uh, we have a database where we put information in and every month I will have a look at my retention rates, how many women each month have I, have I contained here. Some of that's disappointing. If I measure um, success by what I see and not by what's on those paper, on, on that paper, I will see someone who walks through the door who's broken. And even if they don't stay the duration and I'm talking to them a month later and they say, look, you know, this, this is where I am. I can see physically they're healthier. I can see that they're more aware, that they know that if they walk out the door and use, where that will take them. So measuring, measuring success can be on in different ways, you know, and I will always look at the visual, but it doesn't guarantee that somebody will not pick up and use again. What I want to do is to, to really, really work hard to change the things I need to change and, you know, the things I need to change are my relationship with my husband, which, you know, is pretty much broken. This place is amazing. You know what, I didn't think I'd say that so many months back. <laughs> it really has given me a new life. Never, ever forget this place. You know, even the thought of leaving, I think, oh, do I want to go? And uh, I've made some really good friendships in here. My husband is an, an amazing man. Um, he's, he's smart and generous and, um, <laughs> and kind. I never believed people really cared. I always thought they wanted something off me. And it's not. It really ain't. And that is a good feeling. I just was so overwhelmed with the love and care from people in here. I'll never forget it. I'll never forget this place, to be honest. Never. Makes me feel emotional that I haven't got long left. I've eroded all that trust and I think he's exhausted. And I'm really sad about that. You know, I honestly don't blame him. He, um, he stood as much as he could and held his hand out to me for so many years. So this, he deserves a life of his own. The day that I leave here, it's going to be very, very emotional. I think I'm going to be excited, scared, a lot of emotions at once. What I've got out of working here for the last few years is that I think that I've presented with a, a challenge every single day that I'm here. And every single day I leave feeling, well, not always that I've managed the challenge, but some days when I have managed the, cha managed the challenge, it's a great feeling. And, and that I'm involved in something, something meaningful, that I'm surrounded by women, and I absolutely love working with women.
women. I think it's really special. I feel actually very privileged. I think that's what I feel. I feel really privileged that I've been given this opportunity to work here. And I finish on the 5th of May, if you cut the watch, just over a couple of weeks. I guess what will happen is that I will start life over as a person on my own two feet, which I've not really done in my life ever. And, um, and a lot of my being here is about having a sense of who I am, because I think I've never been certain. And there are so many things I want to do and see. It's an amazing place, an amazing place. And I have to say the, the councillors are incredibly professional, incredibly compassionate. I don't know where I'd be without this place. Well, I do, I, I think I wouldn't be. <laughs> I either wouldn't be alive or I would be lost again. My daughter said to me the other week, I've got my mum back and that was just unreal. She rang me up for advice about a boyfriend and I was like, what? I said, you know, you're, she went, yeah, you're my mum. But to give the best support, Hope House needs support. Please help us to help the women in Hope House. You can donate on actiononaddiction.org.uk. If you need help or advice for yourself or someone you care about, please call 0300 330 That's you can donate on actiononaddiction.org.uk or call for help on 0300 330 This is my sixth podcast and by far the most personal that I've so far created. As anyone who knows me will attest, I love talking, but I also like to listen. And this is the impetus behind 1001 Conversations, a podcast about stories, groups, organisations, scout troops and just plain old normal people. Each show will be unique and will feature a different theme or set of speakers. The theme could be your first kiss, visiting San Francisco, going to war, Friday night or even working for BMW. I warn you now, it's going to be somewhat random, but hopefully it will always be informative, sometimes sad and occasionally throwaway and light-hearted. So please get in touch if you'd like me to cover your workplace organisation for the series, or if you have a topic that you think I should cover. Now, I need your feedback, not only on this show, but on future topics. You can record a message on the topic of a future episode, which I will then cut into that show. Or you can leave me your feelings on the work of Home House in this episode by going to www.speakpipe.com forward slash 1001 conversations. That's speakpipe.com forward slash 1001 conversations. You can also email me at Royfield, spelled R-O-I-F-I-E-L-D, at gmail.com. Or you can follow me on Twitter, where I'm also at Royfield. Or you can follow... 1001 Conversations our group on Facebook. On a last note, these shows will come out when they do. As some of you will know, I do many other podcasts and I try to juggle earning a living with creating these podcasts. So please be patient. 
But if you are in dire need of another Royful fix, why not try How Jamaica Conquered the World, or 10 American Presidents, or Audio Lounge, or even Mid-Atlantic, or Dum Dum, which are all available on iTunes or on any other smart podcatcher today. And one last note, if you have enjoyed the show, please give us a review on iTunes. See you all again soon. Mm-hmm.